Craving a good mystery? Need to get away? June's Journey is the perfect game for you. Awaken your inner Sherlock and step into the glamorous roaring 20s as you literally search for clues. It's all part of solving mystery after mystery. Vivid scenes, chill music, and tons of unique features to keep you entertained. You'll love this interactive take on a good story. It's the perfect pick-me-up. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC, through Facebook games. This week on Myths and Legends, there are three stories from Japan. On the first, we'll see how that mid-morning wine break might lead to you meeting the person of your dreams. On the others, we'll see what happens when you have a monster for a roommate and see a deadly family hike. The creature this time is that decapitated guy who loves hugs. And also, stealing underwear. This is Myths and Legends, episode 291, The Monsters. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, there are three stories of transformations from Japanese folklore. We'll jump into the first, starting with a trust fund kid who just settled in for some day drinking. I think you're sitting on an anthill. Akinosuke's friend said to him. Akinosuke stood up. Oh, good catch. The only thing that can ruin day drinking underneath your favorite cedar tree are ants in your pants. And yeah, I gotta say, it must have been nice. Hot afternoon, you can just neglect all your ancestral duties to your family business after your parents left it to you, have some friends over and have some drinks beneath your family's massive cedar tree. It had been there for generations and provided shade on a hot afternoon. Akinosuke was tired of his friend's conversation, though, and told them that they could keep talking, but don't bother him. He was going to take a nap. He interlaced his fingers behind his head, laid back on the tree root, and the wine and warmth did their work. He was napping within 10 minutes. And awake within 11 minutes. What? Akinosuke barked at his friend, who was poking him in the face. His method of waking Akinosuke up was unconventional, but he had a good reason. Akinosuke had visitors. They were a bunch of guys in flowing robes. They stood before the horses and a lacquered carriage. They had been ordered to come fetch Akinosuke by the king. Akinosuke, rubbing the sleep from his eyes, said, uh, Okay. The farmer reasoned that he had come from a good family, and if this was legit, and the king wanted him, why mess it up by asking too many questions? If it wasn't the king, well, this was the swankiest kidnapping he'd ever heard of. He said he was in his, you know, day-drinking sweats. Should he go change? The attendant smiled. He should get comfortable. It was a long way to Toyoko, and the king had clothes from there. Akinosuke nodded. Weird, all right. The carriage creaked as he climbed aboard. He thought it was pronounced Tokyo. Was it, was it really pronounced Toyoko? The ministers nodded. 
Akinosuke breathed. Wow! He was glad he got that cleared up before he got to the king's palace in Tokyo. Uh, sorry, Toyoko. He winked and did a finger gun. All the way to Toyoko, Akinosuke tried to suss out exactly what the king wanted with him. The only thing he could guess was that it was probably good. You don't have someone taken to be executed in a fancy carriage. The carriage rolled through the streets of Toyoko until it came to the palace. Akinosuke had heard stories. His father had been there a few times, but the stories were nothing like what he now saw. The palace seemed to stretch on for miles. People milled around in the courtyard, but all stopped to look when Akinosuke's carriage rolled in. Stopped to look not in a who-is-this-guy-and-what-is-he-doing-here look, the feeling that Akinosuke was trying to ignore in himself, but one of celebration. He had arrived. The people greeted Akinosuke, and he smiled back. Oh, cool, all you people that I haven't met and don't know. What's happening? He quickly found out. After the servants directed him to his room, or rather, his wing of the palace, and more servants stripped him of his sweatpants and arrayed him in the finest silks, he was brought to dinner. And contract negotiations. Akinosuke sat eating while two courtiers explained the situation to him. They had been hoping for some time to get Akinosuke here. His presence had loomed large over the court. Some might say even larger than that of the king, though that, not them. They liked being alive. Akinosuke winked, and Mock locked his lips with a smile. The courtiers chuckled back. Akinosuke said he was happy to, you know, grace everyone with his presence. Totally. A follow-up question, though. Why was he gracing everyone with his presence? The courtiers furrowed their brow. Of course, of course, yes. They shouldn't have wasted Akinosuke's time with all these frivolities. He was here, of course, to marry the princess. If he wanted to, Akinosuke said, Okay, this was... Hmm. If you'll have her, the courtiers again added. Akinosuke, again, didn't want to shatter the illusion of whatever it was that was going on here. He felt that if he said his dad was rich, but not noble rich, that Akinosuke was reasonably dignified, but he was no prince, the courtiers, the king, and the princess would have whatever magic it was removed from their eyes, that he would be sent back home. No, yeah, let's do it, Akinosuke said. The courtiers breathed in relief. Oh, good. The king was waiting in the next room. Akinosuke swallowed hard. This, the next room, with the princess. The courtiers nodded. Akinosuke took a deep breath. All right, why not? He told them to lead the way. Even though Akinosuke tried to bow before the king, the man only laughed. Akinosuke would be his son, an heir. He should consider himself equal. The king gave a nod to one of his servants. His yellow cloak fluttered as he rose from his seat, and the door opened. Akinosuke's heart nearly stopped when he saw the princess, his bride. She radiated across the room, and he loved her from the moment he laid eyes on her. The rest of the day seemed to pass in a heartbeat, like a dream. He and his bride knelt, and they were wed. They were taken to the suite of apartments that had been prepared for them, and all the nobles of the kingdom had traveled from all over to witness the wedding of the king's daughter. 
and of the famed Akinosuke. They received presents beyond counting, and come night, when everyone had left, the couple was in each other's arms. King said it wouldn't do for his son to sit around the palace. Akinosuke was a man of great talents. The king would take advantage of having such a man as his son-in-law. Akinosuke only smiled. Yes, talents. He definitely hadn't grown up the rich son of a rich farmer and coasted on basically that. I mean, the king's people had picked him up day drinking, is what he didn't say to the king. He only stood tall. How could he help his father's kingdom? Our kingdom, the king said solemnly. Akinosuke nodded. That, that's right. He was a prince now. He was still getting used to that. The way Akinosuke was to put his talents to work was some good old-fashioned nepotism. He was fast-tracked to a governor position. It was easy enough. The people were peaceful, but they didn't know the laws of Toyoko. Akinosuke was to govern them with wisdom and kindness. He sailed to the island of Raishu with his wife the princess, in a ship laden with goods and nobles. He landed and found the people of the island ready to welcome him. And the job was easy. There were misunderstandings and confusions, but Akinosuke remembered the king's order to rule with wisdom and kindness. The first three years were busy, but after that, the government ran itself. When the princely governor, Akinosuke's official duties were focused on rites and ceremonies and customs and pretty much nothing else, he turned to his wife, and they started a family together. Over the next 30 years, they had five sons and two daughters. The daughters were first and married off to good families. The sons who were old enough found matches and careers as well, and the youngest were fostered in the greatest households in the kingdom. Akinosuke grew into a man, and then an old man. He shared all those years with the princess, his wife. They loved each other as they had the day they had met, up through nearly 40 years of marriage. Up until the end. She fell sick. He sent word to his father to send the best physicians in Toyoko, but the messenger didn't reach the king before the princess passed. Akinosuke was by her side, weeping when she died. He didn't stop weeping, either. He did stop eating, though. And soon, the king recalled him to Toyoko with the princess's body. While the people were constructing the grand tomb for the princess, the old king said that he thought that Akinosuke needed time. The throne was his if he wanted it, but Akinosuke cut him off and shook his head. Toyoko only reminded him of her. His children, they could take the throne. He, he just wanted to leave this world if he couldn't be here with her. The old king swallowed hard. His yellow cape drooped. He understood Akinosuke's pain. He felt some measure of it himself, though he could see how dearly Akinosuke had loved his daughter. Like he said, Akinosuke needed time. Why didn't the man try going home for a bit? Akinosuke said he couldn't go back to Raishu. Everything there reminded him that the old king said, not Raishu. Home. His old home. His family's farm. Akinosuke thought about it. You know, it might be nice. 
he could see how everything had carried on in his absence. He did actually leave without telling anyone at all or sending word back. Probably should have done at least that. Still, briefly thinking about his affairs at home was longer than he had gone in the past few weeks without agonizing over his late wife. You know what? Sure. Yeah. Maybe it would be nice. Akinosuke said goodbye to the king and the friends he had made. He'd bow before his wife's tomb, now finished. Kissing it. Telling her he would return. The prince boarded the carriage and, all the way out of Toyoko, smiled that, this time, he could feel the bumps of each stone in the road. His body ached. He napped more. The sights weren't as crisp or sharp off in the distance. His wrinkled hands ran through his white hair as he rumbled off over the horizon and remembered the life, the wonderful life, well lived with those he had loved. Akinosuke knew he was close to home when he saw it. 40 years stronger, 40 years taller. The cedar tree. He smiled. That was where his journey had begun. He told the driver to stop. Akinosuke could see his family's estate off in the distance. He didn't know what state it was in, but he could take a moment here, at the tree. He walked along, feeling the bark. He finally came to the spot on which he used to sit with his friends. He lay down. It had been a warm afternoon, like this one. He interlaced his fingers behind his head, watched the leaves swaying gently, and... Oh, oh my gosh, Akinosuke said, nearly choking. He turned to his friend. Why were his fingers in Akinosuke's mouth? Wait. His friend was trying to tell him something about a moth flying in his mouth. They were just trying to be helpful, but Akinosuke couldn't stop. He couldn't stop looking at his hands. They weren't wrinkled. He felt his side and his face. His skin was taut. He took down his hair. Black. Not silver. He... What had happened? You were sleeping? His friend said, taking another swig of wine. They said it was super weird. While he slept, a moth came out of his mouth. They didn't know if it was the wine or what, but then things just got stranger. The moth flew over to that anthill and was pulled in by this big black ant. It wasn't an hour, though, until the moth emerged again from the anthill and started making for Akinosuke's mouth. The friend tried to get it before it went down his throat, thinking that waking up with his friend's fingers in his mouth would be better than a moth in his throat, but he guessed both kind of happened. Yeah, Akinosuke grimaced. He sat there in awe. He couldn't believe it. He had lived 40 years. It was all nothing? Just an afternoon? His children, his kingdom, his... his wife? Then, he looked at the anthill. He told one of his friends, go to the house, get a spade, a small one. He didn't want to disturb them. Akinosuke removed the outer area, around the initial hole, but then realized he had to go deeper. He followed the bumpy, winding tunnel until it opened up into a cavern. Whoa, 
Akinosuke's friends said in unison. The ants were freaking out, going in all directions, scrambling deeper underground. Their little mounds and holes looked like houses. You could almost be fooled into thinking that it was like a big city underneath the root of the tree, leading up to a grand hill built around a root in the center, almost like a palace. There, one ant didn't move in terror like all the others. Oh, oh, that's the one. That's the one that grabbed the moth. One of his friends shouted. He had the yellow wings. Akinosuke sat in shock. Yellow wings. Like the king's yellow cloak. That meant... Akinosuke's eyes looked back a bit from the king. To the courtyard before the palace. A clay mound sat in a place of honor. A water-worn pebble on the top. Like a Buddhist monument. Wow, that ant is a brave one. One of his friends said. He is. He's the king. He's my father-in-law. And that? That's the grave of my wife. Akinosuke swallowed hard and nodded at the ant. Goodbye. The ant nodded back as Akinosuke replaced the clod of dirt over the palace grounds. Akinosuke's friends thought it was the wine. I mean, that was weird. Truly, something changed in their friend after that day. He no longer whiled away the days aimlessly drinking and not caring about his family's legacy or all the people in their employ. He was a wise, kind leader. They did think him odd, though. In all the years that followed, he never married. He spent long hours out by the cedar tree in quiet reflection, and after he was gone... He put it in his will that he wanted his remains to be put out by the cedar tree and not in his ancestral graveyard. He wanted to be with his true family. In the original, the friends kind of believed the story, saying that the ants can sometimes be like goblins. For all the stories we have of goblins, oni, tanukis, and foxes tricking humans to eat them, steal from them, or just mess with them, it was nice to have a story of goblin animals tricking humans to make everyone's lives richer and more beautiful. Speaking of tanukis, our next tale involves the famous giant testicle Japanese raccoon dog trickster, but that will be right after this. The priest was out gathering wood after the snowstorm. The other priests had acolytes to do stuff like this for them. For some reason, none had ever wanted to come up to his temple in the farthest reaches of the mountain peaks. He crunched along with each footstep until, up in the road, he spotted a heap of something. He got closer and saw that it was an animal. A tanuki. It was unconscious. The priest felt it unconscious, but not dead. It was still warm, a little at least. Its fur had frozen on the outside, but the priest could see the creature's breath in the air. The priest dropped what wood he had in order to carry the creature and cut his trip short. Three hours later, the priest heard a stirring by the fire in the temple. I have been captured, 
the priest heard. You, you have been rescued, the priest replied. The Chinooki rolled over, narrowing its beady eyes. What was the priest's game here? Rescuing you, the priest noted again. The Chinooki tried to rise, but winced. Part of rescuing the creature involved him staying put, the priest said, kneeling down with a bowl of soup. The Chinooki was still hurt. He needed to take time to heal. The Chinooki sipped at the soup in the firelight. The priest could see his teeth glinting. Why would you do this? The Chinooki asked. This could all be a long con for me to kill you and take your place. Oh, I know. The life of a mountain priest. Pretty glamorous, the priest said. I, I have firewood and oh, food, like literally days of rice and old man priest clothes. So yeah, I see why you'd want to risk freezing to death on the road to get your paws on all this. The priest laughed. The Tanuki said no, like in the stories, the priest is warned from inviting the Tanuki in. They're dangerous. Maybe, the priest shrugged. But since when should I only be kind to my friends? He told the Tanuki to eat. He needed to get his strength up if he was going to murder the priest. My house is gone, the Tanuki said to the priest, when the man returned from his prayers a little while later. The priest furrowed his brow. Oh, yeah, it was a pretty sweet lair. An ice cave, spiky, hard, super villainous. It was great. I have been there for 30 years. Then yesterday, the ice shifts. I barely tumble out with my life, and the next thing I know, I'm careening down a mountain. The last thing I remember was passing out in the road. If, if you hadn't found me, I did, the priest said, telling the Tanuki it had been a small thing, and not to concern himself with it. He was welcome to stay in the temple as long as he needed. He did. And then some. When he healed, he would travel during the day, finding firewood and any other edible plants he could find for them. The priest would prepare food, and they would both have company during the night. When the snows began to thaw, and the mountain streams began to flow again, the Tanuki said he should be going. The priest had told him how the villagers usually came up after the first thaw in the spring, to bring the priest provisions and mend the temple roof and walls. The Tanuki didn't want to get shot by some overzealous hunter who didn't realize he was a friend. What? The Tanuki said, when the priest just stood there, smiling. Nothing, it's just, you said friend. The Tanuki grumbled, whatever. What he meant was that he wasn't trying to murder the priest. Yet. I know, I know, the priest said, and told his little friend that if he found himself back in the area in the winter, it was nice to have him around for company. The Tanuki rolled his eyes. Yeah, like that's ever going to happen. It did. The following winter, the Tanuki showed up at the temple. The priest playfully chided him before inviting the creature in from the cold. It took about three winters before the Tanuki stopped acting like they weren't friends. And five, before he broke down and let the priest build him a bed in an alcove in the temple, essentially a room of his own. At ten years, he asked the priest something he had wanted to ask for the last three years. He wanted to say that he was so grateful. Grateful for the priest to give him a chance. To look past what he thought the Tanuki was. To show him kindness and for saving his life. And being a friend. The priest nodded. 
of course. All this time, though, the priest had given and given, but he had never asked for anything. What could the Tanuki give the priest in return? What did the priest desire? The priest rubbed his bald head as he sat back. Desire, that was the name of the game, wasn't it? He didn't have any. He had shaved his head, renounced the world, and forsaken its pleasures. Likewise, he had no desires to gratify. All his worldly needs were seen to by the village, at the foot of the mountain. And if he died this winter, they would bury him in the spring. He paused. If he did wish for one thing, though, it would be three rio. Gold, the tanuki smiled. The priest held up his hands. It, now, not like that. He didn't have any need for riches. It's just he would donate them at a holy shrine that prayers might be said for him so he could enter into salvation. The tanuki nodded thoughtfully. The priest said, but posthumous honors were the wishes of ordinary people. He was a priest. He was supposed to be above all that. But still, he did harbor some desires, and it was only because the tanuki was such a close friend that he would even utter them. The tanuki thanked him for sharing that. The tanuki didn't come to the temple the next winter, and the priest began to worry. It had been ten years. He knew he shouldn't get attached, but he did miss the little guy. The only thing that he could think changed was him telling the tanuki about his desire for gold. He worried. He worried that he had committed an error, that the tanuki had tried to obtain the gold through dangerous or unlawful means, like tanuki means, and gotten himself hurt, captured, or killed. The priest had added to both his own sins and the tanuki's by his desires. That was just another lesson for him. But he still had so far left to go. The Chnuki didn't come back the winter after that, or the following winter. The priest began to think about his old friend's visits as happening in the past, a wonderful thing that used to happen when he heard a tapping on the door. He opened it and looked down. It was him, the Chnuki. The three years since had not been kind to the creature. His arms were scarred and his fur singed. He carried a sack. When he was inside, and the priest slid the door shut against the wind, the tanuki turned the sack upside down. Three rio slid out, and the gold shimmered in the firelight. The priest said, What was that? The tanuki said it was for his friend, the priest. He said he had wanted three rio, and the tanuki had gotten it for him. The priest picked them up, marveling nearly moved to tears. This was everything he had ever wanted. Prayers could be said for him now. After he was dead, he could be honored. He set them back down, but he couldn't accept. The Tanuki shook his head. He didn't understand. The priest breathed deeply. Not to offend his friend, but what honorable legal way of earning human money existed for a tanuki. This was for his salvation, and it was going to be donated to a shrine. It couldn't come from a questionable source. Far from being offended, the tanuki smiled. 
he was hoping his friend might feel that way. It would make the past three years actually worth it. He didn't get the money in a... Tanuki way. The priest was right. Tanukis didn't really have a way of earning honorable money. If this money had been dead, like, I don't know, for clothes to dress up as somebody to steal more money from somebody or eat somebody or forming a corporation to get a bunch of suckers to develop property on deserted islands, yeah, he would rob, murder, and scam to get this money. But it wasn't for that. It was for his friend. So he went to the island of Sato, the one with the gold mines. He stalked the worker camps and sifted through the sand, searching the discarded flecks in the rocks. He set up his own camp not too far off. He built a forge, made molds. He made three pure rio for his friend, using only hard work. The priest lifted up his friend with a hug. I thought it was funny that, in the original, the Chinooki told the priest that he did a kindness part of the priest returning that kindness was to never tell anyone what the Tanuki had done ever. It was too nice. He needed to speak with other Tanukis again, and if they found out what he had done, oof, he would never live that down. The priest told the Tanuki that he couldn't keep the money in his temple. The villagers who looked after him were kind, but also human. He didn't want their excessive desires to make it difficult for them to stay virtuous. The best course of action was to donate it immediately. The next morning, the pair set off for the city. They camped as they went, and soon they approached the gate. The priest turned to tell the Tanuki that he should probably find another way inside, but the creature was gone. Probably for the best. The priest made his way to the shrine, and the priest there was flabbergasted. A couple things. One, how did the priest get this much money? Who was so generous? Also, too, he didn't hear that the mountain priest had taken on an acolyte. He pointed behind the priest. The mountain priest looked behind him to the young man in the brown cloak, who smiled. The mountain priest shrugged. It didn't know what to say. The acolyte had been with him, what, going on 13 years now? As for the money, well, a tanuki dropped it at his temple. Can you believe it? Couldn't say for certain where it came from, but he didn't have any reason to think it was tainted at all. The priest inspected the money. Sure, whatever. Tanukis are dreadful creatures, the acolyte chimed in. I don't know, the mountain priest smiled. They can surprise you, and I think they have it in them to be good, even if they don't want to admit it themselves. No, your acolyte is correct, the shrine priest said, inspecting the rio. Tanukis are horrible. You know one straight up fed an old woman to her husband? They use their testicles as sails. Horrible, horrible creatures. All right, the mountain priest said. He donated his money to the shrine and left the city. On his way out, he looked back to the young man in brown that still followed him. Acolyte, huh? Shut up, the Tanuki said. The Tanuki and the priest spent every winter together after that. Many years later, on the winter where the priest died, the people emerged from the village in the spring to find the body had already been buried underneath a beautiful carved headstone. Even though they couldn't find a priest to occupy the remote mountain temple after that and the people of the village stopped visiting, travelers would tell how the abandoned temple 
never fell into disrepair. Some even say, on the cold winter nights, you could look up and see a fire glowing, that the Tanuki was spending a warm evening with an old friend. We'll get into our third story about a mother and son leaving on a perilous journey, but that will once again be right after this. It was his mother's birthday. She was 60. The peasant embraced her, then sobbed into her shoulder just like he had when he was a boy. And just like when he was a boy, she rubbed his back. She told him everything was going to be all right. They both knew that it was a lie. There was a pounding at the door. The first thing the daimyo had done when he took power was to make a list. Names and birthdays. The mother patted her son to go answer it. He didn't need more trouble than today already brought. The peasant rose and met the two samurai at the door. Tonight, they said, leave before dusk. They wore their swords prominently. It wasn't a request. The peasant looked to the ground and nodded. The day was spent in preparation. The journey would be a long one, and the mother would need to be carried most of the way. She walked from the village, though. She could show that she could still walk from her home under her own power. About a half mile from home, though, the mother started falling behind. She was preoccupied with this or that flower or stick on the ground. The young man began to worry. The daimyo's retainers could be riding after them for all he knew. He told his mother that it was time. He knelt down, and she climbed atop his back. The walk went faster after that. And though it was difficult carrying another up the side of a mountain, it was nice to be close to his mother. They stopped for a brief meal before continuing the climb. The shadows of the forest all around danced and lurked, but the peasant knew that, despite the stories, there were no monsters here. No tanukis, oni, goblins, or anything else. The real monsters were back in the village. He found the level spot in the forest, somewhere near the peak, and his foot found the smooth, cylindrical shape in the dark. He recoiled. The mood emerged from behind a cloud, illuminating the grove. Dozens of piles, some bleached and scattered, some hunched and greasy and picked over by animals that fled the grove on his arrival. Bones. Remains. The young man pressed onward. Not here. He found a small clearing next to a spring. It had a soft bubbling sound to it. It was away from the bones. He lowered his mother. I'm sorry, the son said. A sob broke through. His mother embraced him as she sat among the flowers. They both knew that this was coming. He was going to refuse, but she insisted on it. The daimyo's edict was heartless, ruthless, that for the strength of the region, 
everyone over 60 should be left to die on the mountain. He had shown his willingness to dispatch a samurai to deal with any who defied him. She wouldn't have both of them dying. Not for her. She would do this for him. Her last motherly act of sacrificial love. She didn't say any of this. She had already said it in the days leading up. She merely hugged him. She said that she loved him, this wasn't his fault, and he needed to go now. The peasant stumbled away, looking back a few times to his mother, sitting in quiet contemplation next to the spring. He was blinded by his tears, so much so that, upon getting halfway down the mountain, he realized that he was lost. He spun around in panic. He didn't know the way home. There might not be Oni out here, but there could be wolves. Highwaymen. His heart beat faster. Then, there was a snap when he took a step. He looked to the ground. A stick. His eyes looked further on down the path. Another stick glowed in the moonlight. Then, another. His mother. She had dropped them for him. She knew her son and knew that he would be so distraught from leaving her to die that he wouldn't know his way back. She had left a trail of broken sticks to guide him. She had been looking out for him, even on the way to her own death. The peasant stopped. No, he wasn't going to do this. He turned and raced back up the mountain. She stopped making a fuss about it when they approached the village, and they both had to be quiet. The peasant snuck past the guards and entered his house, lifting up the floorboards. He dug until dawn, helping his mother down into the hole and replacing the boards over her head. When the samurai came to inspect the house, to see that she was really gone, she watched them through the cracks beneath the planks. Keeping her hidden turned out to be easy. She didn't eat much, and she could come out whenever they didn't have visitors. Besides, the daimyo had other things to worry about now. There was a reason for the daimyo's obsession with strength. Another lord, another daimyo, was eyeing his lands. The man was powerful, and he had issued a challenge. It came in the form of a riddle. A riddle the enemy lord said should be easy for the daimyo, if he wasn't too stupid to rule, his words. Of course, such an insult could prompt a reprisal. That was what the enemy lord wanted. He said the daimyo had a week to show how to make a rope out of ash, or else that would demonstrate that he was too intellectually unfit to look after his people, and the enemy lord would do them a kindness by conquering them. The daimyo had no idea and put out the challenge to his people. Anyone who could make a rope out of ash would be honored. They could have whatever they asked of the Lord. Oh, that, that's easy, the mother said, upon emerging from the hole that morning. Apparently, if you coat a rope in salt, or soak it in salt water, then let it dry and then burn it, it will retain its shape. I can't verify this, but apparently in the story, it worked. The peasant rushed the ash rope to the Lord. He had saved his province. For 
about three hours. The next challenge came through in the form of a porcelain ball with a winding hole through its center. The daimyo had to pass a silk thread through the ball. And he did. Well, the peasant did. With the mother's guidance, the peasant smeared a bit of honey on the other side of the ball and tied the thread to an ant. The ant, going after the honey, wound its way around the center of the ball and emerged out the other side. The peasant had done it again. But still, a third task came. A drum. Make a drum sound without being beaten by a person. The mother knew the answer to this one too. It was, of course, bees. Tie up a bee on the inside of the drum and they'll tap it. When the peasant took the solution to the daimyo, the ruler received yet another message. But this one wasn't from the enemy lord. This was from the emperor. He had learned what the enemy lord was doing. He was disrupting the peace, and he and his samurai were being called to the emperor's court to explain themselves. It was over. The daimyo called everyone together and had the peasants stand before all. This man, this man's wisdom, had saved their province. The peasant shook his head. No, no, it wasn't him. He pointed to the crowd. It parted, and his mother stepped out. He turned to the daimyo. He had been disobedient. He had defied the daimyo's orders. He had saved his mother, and in turn, his mother had saved all of them. She alone had answered the riddles. Given the daimyo's messengers time to get to the emperor, she might not be able to work like him tirelessly, but she possessed gifts that none of them had. It was an evil to leave the elderly to starve in the forest. The peasant and his mother relied on the wisdom and understanding of the daimyo, and he showed it. He nodded. He explained that he had only wanted to make his province stronger, but he could see now that he had only weakened it. He had been wrong. He had misjudged the elderly. From that day forward, instead of being ordered to take the elderly to their deaths, people were ordered to care for their parents and the lifetime of wisdom that they possessed. Now, this was, admittedly, a tidy little moral. The practice of ubisute, which I found in places translates to abandoning an old woman, or more colorfully, granny-dumping mountain. Like the Scandinavian Atastup, this act of abandoning the elderly in times of famine or hardship appears to largely be legendary, at least in the sense that there be an edict demanding fulfillment. It's possible that it could have, tragically, been carried out at the local or family level, but we just don't know. The moral is nice, though it would be better if it were more focused on not abandoning people to die based on their value as people, not just for what value they can bring with their wisdom. Also, yeah, the central premise of the third story today was essentially ageist. Age really is just a number. I'm in my 30s, and this summer I was super winded after a hike, and people a good bit older than the mother in today's story were still going strong. Still, the lesson today was nice, and when it comes to folklore, I guess we have to take what we can get. If you want more stories of people starving, 
a new episode of Scoundrel came out last week. How's that for transitions? We visit the unorthodox treatments of Linda Hazard, whose cure for everything seemed to boil down to starvation, enemas, and punching people in the head. Check it out by following the link in the show notes or by searching for Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, wherever you get your podcasts. The creature this week is the Pugat, from Filipino folklore. The Pugat means decapitated one, and weirdly enough, that is the least interesting thing about it. It stalks the forests, the abandoned buildings, and deserted places of the Philippines. And yeah, it has no head. Sometimes it can shapeshift and take the form of a hog or a dog. Not sure if it sticks to a theme and makes those headless, but it usually likes to stick to a humanoid form. In addition to missing its head, it also is sometimes missing its hands. But sadly, it loves giving hugs. Doubling down on the gross imagery, Pugat has blood and goo continually gushing from its severed wrists. It'll snatch up travelers and hug them, running a brief distance in the forest as it does so. It'll then drop the person, unharmed. I mean, they'll be lost in the forest, covered in blood from the most vicious, unasked-for hug ever, so unharmed is really relative here. It's no surprise that hugs from the Pugat often lead to insanity. It doesn't eat humans, and that's not because it's nice. Remember, it doesn't have a head. It can't chew. It only eats snakes and centipedes, things that it can stuff down its neck hole. In addition to hugs, it also grows in a different way, because it also likes stealing women's underwear left out on clotheslines. And that's it. We're not sure where it comes from, how to defeat it, and though it's gross and terrifying, it's largely harmless. Unless, of course, you value your sanity or underwear. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. The theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we used in the show notes. Myths and Legends is a registered trademark of Bardic Enterprises, LLC. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>